Father, as we approach your word this morning, we are grateful that you have preserved your word for us. We ask, Lord, you would help us to become much more the Christian who thinks your thoughts after you. That we would continue to become the Christian that thinks in the way that honors you, that, that thinks in a way that uh, reveals our dependence upon you, that shows a dependence upon the truth of the word. We thank you, Father, for how many things your word covers and that you have not left us without your wisdom. So we ask you bless our time this morning in your word, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's begin this morning with Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The uh, title of, of the sermon today is not exactly very catchy or creative, uh, but it kind of gives you the gist of where we're going with all of this. Marriage, homosexuality, gender issues or confusion, creation, male and female distinctions. Well, we can use that as an outline, I guess, if you want, but that's kind of where we're going with all of this. We've already talked about homosexuality, but as I mentioned before, because of the times that we live in, because of the issues and the way people deal with issues and the, and the way they're pushing certain issues, it is important that we approach these things, again, as Christians. And I believe also that we have an understanding of where our ideas or convictions actually come from. Again, the idea is not when it comes to dealing, and some of these issues can be complicated. It's not that we can't get them, but they can be complicated. But we can think through them again because the Bible, I believe, does address them. There are foundational things that will help in our thinking and working our way through them. Because what we don't want to do, I believe, we don't want to do, is to 
have someone ask us about some of these issues and we just kind of say, well, I just know what's right. Because that's not, that's not helpful. We may say to an individual, well, it just feels wrong. Or it's never been that way. We have all of these controversies that we have in our society. All of these disagreements will give to us opportunities to share Christ with others. That's why, that's why last week's message is really foundational to everything that we're going to be talking about. We always want to go back to what we talked about last week because that is, that is the crux of the matter. It doesn't mean that when someone brings up the issue of, of you know, gender confusion that we suddenly say, well, I know that's a problem, but I do know that Jesus Christ came to earth and died for our sin. That, that wouldn't be a, that's not a natural transition. But we want to get to that point because that does deal with what we're talking about. And we want to make sure that, again, that, we were, that, that when we express ourselves, someone may want to know where we get these ideas from. And that's sometimes at that very beginning point, that's where sometimes we get a lump in our throat. Because if we say what well, comes from the Bible, what we are at times afraid of is they would think that we're just dumb or that we are a non-thinking person, that we're following something blindly. None of that is true. But it seems for some, maybe, we have a greater fear of what they might be thinking than anything else that's going on. And so we kind of begin to shut down or back away. I'm not saying that we need to start yelling. I'm not saying we need to start pounding our fist. I'm not saying that you need to carry your eight-and-a-half-pound Bible to work and swing it. But we do need to be able to articulate not only what we believe, but why. And do so in a way that really honors the Lord. Now, I'm sure you're already aware, there's a lot of people who don't want to hear that. But keep in mind that the gospel, that the Bible still tells us that the gospel itself is the power of God to salvation. And so we don't have to be ashamed of what the Bible says. Even those who argue with us at times are listening intently at what we're saying. There are those who won't. There are those who will mock us, absolutely. But even at times, those who mock us, or it's that individual who is over there who hears what we're saying and never enters the conversation that the Lord will use the things that you say in their life. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I have to believe that, not because it makes me feel better, but because I, I know how God works. And God works through his truth. And I have seen that happen in the lives of others. I have listened to individuals tell me that because of someone else's conversation, it started them on a track of thinking that led them maybe to another believer or to church or somewhere, and they ended up hearing the gospel and in time came to believe. I have heard individuals say that they got into an argument with a friend and they were angry at their friend because of the things their friend was saying. And God used it in their life through time, and that person ended up coming to know Christ as their Savior. I also know there are times that you argue with a friend or have a debate with a friend, and they will, in a sense, unfriend you, and they'll never speak to you again. That, that will happen. It can happen. We don't want it to happen, but it can. But we should have such a great love for that person's soul 
that we're willing to risk that. And so when it comes to these things, when it comes to, these, to the arena of sexuality, which is what gender issues are about, and homosexual lifestyles and the whole LGBTQ and all the, whatever, however anybody kind of wants to go through that, the idea is that we're dealing with sexuality. For some, and maybe in the beginning when some of these things began, there was more of this, but there can be often a painful context to some of these debates. There are some people who hold to what they hold to because they really have been bullied. Now, there are times when I hear people talk about being bullied. I do. I roll my eyes, sometimes only in my mind because it would cause too much of a reaction. I don't buy into all of that, but that doesn't mean that never takes place. It does. And there are those who have been very deeply hurt in all kinds of ways for maybe reasons we'll never understand, and that is the background as to why they're taking the stand they take or are saying the things that they say. We as believers must be compassionate towards those. And since in almost every case we don't really know the background, then that is the starting position. It's a safe position to be in. It's not sinful to be compassionate. It's not a sin to be kind. It's not compromise to be understanding. To try to understand where someone comes from, you're not compromising the truth of the word of God. Some people are afraid that that's what that means. That somehow by being compassionate or understanding, we are condoning. That doesn't mean that. Now, they might take it that way, and, and you can't stop how everybody interprets what we're doing. But the solution to that is not to be mean-spirited or to be gruff. Then be misunderstood. Jesus allowed for that. Remember what they said about him. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. What they mean by sinners is he was a friend to prostitutes. Most of us don't want to have that label. We're worried about all kinds of ramifications of that. Don't be afraid of those things. It's going to happen. We're following the example of Christ. But we must be that individual. It's important. We must ensure that we treat people as image bearers because we believe and we know from Scripture that they were created in the image of God. I will be honest, there are times that that can be extremely hard. There are people who do rub us the wrong way. The way they talk, the way they express themselves, maybe the anger they're expressing, maybe the irrational, irrational behavior and irrational speech that they're expressing can really you know, put us on edge. Depend upon God to help you to get through those things. Remind yourselves that that person may be speaking from nothing but pain and rejection they've experienced their entire life. I don't know how many of us, because I've never really tried to sit down and go, to go through our directory and try to memorize everybody's family context, but many of us are blessed in that our families don't have those experiences, that kind of betrayal and that kind of rejection and how people have maybe, in a sense, abused each other. And so it's very difficult for us to identify with that. But we can be understanding because we know it's real and we know that it takes place. Of course, if you have experienced those things yourself, of anyone else who should be compassionate, it should be you because you've experienced those things firsthand. People who disagree with us over sexuality and all of these issues need to know that we love them. 
So yes, I adhere dogmatically and closely to the truth of what we read in Genesis 1 and Romans 1. But I don't have to be angry about it. And I don't have to be mean about it. We must lead with love. And we should ask ourselves this question. Have our views of sexuality actually been shaped by Jesus? Has our views been shaped by Paul and the scriptures or by psychology, sociology, and atheistic philosophers? Because sometimes our views of these things have been influenced by Netflix, TV, podcast, Twitter, Facebook, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of others, and not so much by the scripture. So how do we as Christians navigate these things? Because what I don't want to do is, my goal is not to give you pithy comebacks that we can give when people bring up certain things. There there are those who've done that. And some of those pithy comebacks actually are filled with a great deal of truth. But what I want us to be able to do is to think through these things in a biblical way. To know what the foundation is so that we can have discussions with individuals. Maybe that will come later when they begin to go through those dark times. And we can truly help them because we'll know how to navigate that conversation to the gospel, to what their need really is. And the needs may be many. And so in the passage that we read in Genesis, the passage that we read in Romans leads us to this first question, and that is this. Is our view of sexuality as expression of creator or creature worship? Are we worshiping the creator Or are we worshiping the creature? I don't want you to miss this connection. And when I first saw this sentence, I immediately thought that it was over the top. That it wasn't correct. The sentence is, there is no such thing as sex that is not simultaneously an act of worship. And in my limited understanding at that moment, I thought, well, I guess if the person is worshiping sex, then absolutely. But not everybody worships sex. But I was missing the point. Sexuality is inherently a religious matter. The way we think about it, the way we engage in sexual acts, will be a fundamental expression, consciously or not, of either creature or creator worship. Because again, when you look at Romans, Romans chapter 1, what did it say? It said, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies. Now, it says, therefore... Well, what did he do? In other words, there, what is that there for? It's based on what he said before. What did he say before? Well, we've exchanged the glory of God for images. That would be idol worship. But in case you missed it, in verse 24, when he says God gave them over, he says in verse 25, because. Well, what did they do? It says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what? The creature. And then that's the reason, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to what? And the next thing you read is sexual sin. That is the first expression of creature worship in the book of Romans is sexual sin when man exchanges the truth of God for the lie. When when man turns to idols or to creature worship, the first expression is sexual sin. I've read Romans 1 probably over 500 times in my life. I have taught it many times. It's really clear. I never saw that. I just, I just went right over it. I've gone through Romans 1 in great detail. I think I do pretty good with it. 
I missed it. It's so fantastic to have my eyes open. They go, well, yeah, that's exactly what it says. And so here's this idea that God is explaining to us. And maybe this explains why in our culture, what we see in human behavior, that when it comes to all these sexual issues, people seem to feel them so deeply. It's like they get their claws in it and they're gripping it so tightly. Why? Because there's something about it that is so central to who we are deep inside and, of course, to the direction that we're going. And this is, this is what man does. Philip Yancey, in a book called Rumors of Another World, he said this, If humanity serves as your religion, then sex becomes an act of worship. On the other hand, if God is the object of your religion, then romantic love becomes an unmistakable pointer, a rumor of transcendence as loud as any we hear on earth. So think about that for a moment, what he's, what he's expressing to us there. Because we all know that when it comes to the secular world and it comes to porn and all those things that are involved in all of this and the way people talk about sexuality, it, they, they do tend to ob they objectify not only the act, but people. But everybody still likes love stories. And one of the things that God has told us is that the relationship of the husband and wife points, is an illustration of Christ and his relationship to the church. And so, hopefully, when I say this, this is true of you, you have a very deep love for your spouse. A love that would be seen in your commitment, definitely in the way that you feel, in the way that you would respond to that individual, and that should help us to identify the love that Christ has for his bride. So for some of us, we're thinking, man, that's really intense. For some of us, it's like, well, we'll pray for you. But marriage is supposed to be terrific, just so you know. That's not just, you know, a romantic idea. It really can be great, even when you disagree. Like I've told Cindy, of all the people in the world I could fight with, I'd rather fight with you. And that's true. Not that I want to fight, but you know what I mean. And so that's what this is, and that's what he's trying to get at. In Romans, again, Paul describes this move from creator to creation worship in the arena that when the first place is this destructive exchange expresses itself is in the realm of sexuality. When we acknowledge the godhood of God, our view of sex starts with the creator who infused his cosmos with exceedingly good or very good differences. Again, Philip Yancey says this, with astounding artistic brilliance, God structured the universe with beautiful distinctions, separating day and night, the waters above from the waters below, the sea from dry land, different animals and different plant species, and more. Six times in the Genesis account of creation, God looked at his creative works of contrast and declared it was good. When you look at the details of, of um, creation, a declaration of beauty, it was not a moral claim that he was making that it was good, or a legal claim that it was good, or a political claim that it was good. In fact, between the sixth good and the seventh, in which God calls his creation very good, God had added to his masterpiece sexuality, male and female. 
male and female, designed in a garden, is exceedingly beautiful. When you hear individuals in these debates, the moral kinds of debates that you can hear on podcasts or maybe see in written form on, on the internet, because that's often where these things are viewed and discussed, what we see is that these strong Christians or those who have borrowed from Christianity are basing their views on the universe God has designed. And they are recognizing that God created the universe with all of these distinctions. And that in the beginning, when he created male and female, that is God showing us and declaring that that is what is when it comes to human beings. And that it's, it's not, oh, it just doesn't matter what you are. It is not where there's this confusion. There is no confusion in Genesis. It's not that we've gone too far in trying to apply Genesis to the day we live in. That's the proper understanding. Remember, the Word of God is not only a book that helps us to understand what we might call spiritual truth. It's how we are to view everything. We want to understand the world in which we live in. We go to the Bible. The Bible does form our understanding of the universe. You've heard me use this phrase before, that, that Genesis forms for us our meta-narrative. That is the narrative, that is the story that gives to us understanding of everything. It's the explanation of everything in the world. One of the things that's been going on over the past 20 years is there are those in, who are teaching philosophy and those in the world who want to get rid of the meta-narrative. Not just the Christian meta-narrative, they don't want there to be any meta-narrative. They don't want to believe that there's any one story that, that can explain everything. In a sense, I guess what they're hoping for is just absolute chaos, which is what we end up with. But remember now, we have this explanation that we believe is true. We know it's true. Why are there boys and why are there girls? Why? That's how God created it. That's exactly why. Well, why are there different animals? That's how God created it. When my children were little kids and we would go on a walk and I would show them all these different flowers. We grew up in Hawaii, there's flowers everywhere. It's really wonderful. There'd be all these flowers and I would ask them, why do you think God had all of these different colors and flowers? Because he could and because he thought they were beautiful and thought we would like them. And you know what? We do. We like them so much, we pay money to someone else to cut them and put them in arrangements. And in some cases, pay money to have some flowers flown in from other parts of the world to give to somebody we love because of the beauty that's there. As with everything else that God has created, things can be and they can often be twisted. They can be warped. They can be mangled. As we see with all the supposed gender confusion and sexism, which is simply a denial of what God has clearly revealed to us and man depending upon himself. The solution, though, is not to erase the difference between male and female. It's to affirm the original and sacred beauty of a loving male and female relationship. Just so you know, the world, meaning the secular, they hate that. They hate it. And there is a, when I say a movement, I, I, I don't know if it's like an official movement, but there is a trend within many churches. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a lot where the individual who is in the pulpit preaching, where they are trying to find a way 
to marry the philosophy of the world to the Bible. And what they do is they take the philosophy of the world and they reinterpret what the Bible says. And they come out and say things that are wrong. And they say this an attempt to be loving and kind and all these different words they use to try to, I guess, justify these positions that it's not just that they moved away from tradition. Remember that tradition, I believe, should be questioned, but not just thrown away because it's tradition. You do know sometimes tradition is correct. It's okay to reevaluate them. When we look at how the Bible has been interpreted for thousands of years, you do know that that's a good thing. That's why we don't have any confusion. Most of us aren't confused over who Jesus is, are we? You know why? It's because that's, all, that's been hammered out. So those who are confused about Jesus are few and far between, normally. But this still takes place, but it's rare. And so the, the bottom line is, is that, that we want to make sure we're not, that we're not trying to reinterpret what the Bible says, but that we are going to champion what the Bible says. This happened years ago. There was a, they called the Council of, of Manhood and Womanhood. And, and these... Uh, Pastors and academics, male and female, got together, and they, and they, wanted, to, they wanted to hammer out what does, what does the Bible teach us about what it means to be a man? What does the Bible teach us about what it means to be a woman? What is a man? What is a woman? And they, they used the Bible as their basis and as their authority, and they worked on it for years, came out with terrific things, ter a fantastic statement to make it crystal clear because they knew already, because it was already starting, that all these confusing things were coming down the pipe, so to speak. And they already started. And so, if there's ever any question, it's such a fabulous place to go. In fact, they actually closed it down. I think they still have the website, but, they, but their work is done. It's fairly exhaustive on, on that subject. And then a brilliant job. It's just biblical. Man, there's people who hate it. There's people in the church who hate it. That's why we, we, we come back to where is our stance? Are we going to stand on the Bible or not? That, that is going to form our understanding as well as our opinion and convictions about what's going on in the world and what we decide, what we are going to believe, what we're going to teach our children as we seek to have an influence on those around us. Gender distinctions are a gift from God to be celebrated and not obliterated. Men cannot replace women, and women cannot replace men without something beautiful being lost. We can sometimes get so caught up in various social justice issues, gender issues, etc. And the reason why that can often happen is because our understanding of sexuality comes less and less from Scripture and more and more from the ideological architects and ancestors of the sexual revolution. Again, people try to say, well, but God is a God of love. Yes, he is. But in their mind, they have changed the definition of what love is or how you exercise love. It sounds good when they say it, but in the application of it, they just destroy what the Word of God says and along the way destroy lives and even society itself. Peter Jones one time was doing a debate and he says this, he says, you know, I might feel more attracted towards a reductionist approach to sex. Reductionist meaning that, you know, there's not these distinctions. It's just, it doesn't really matter. You proclaim whatever you are, and that's what you are. And even if it changes every day, it doesn't matter. He says, I might feel more attracted towards a reductionist approach to sex if I sensed that the sexual revolution had increased respect between genders, had created a more loving environment for children, 
relieved the ache of personal loneliness and fostered intimacy. But I don't see any evidence of that. So just he's speaking on a practical level. These things have not happened. Everyone already knows because we've been warned about this for a long time. Because individuals used to say back in the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s when they began to change a lot of ways we, when I say we, and the way the world would approach some of these issues, homosexuality, etc. And everyone has maybe heard the idea that there was a time when psychology said that homosexuality was, a, was deviant and that there's something was wrong with the person and now that you no longer find that in the, in the writings of secular psychologists. And the warning was, well back then, the, 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 the statement was, well when is this ever going to stop? Even those who were for the new way to look at homosexuality said, well, but it would never get to a point to where we would allow for pedophilia. And there are many Christians who said, no, that's coming. It's going to be here. And now here we are. They're already working on changing how individuals are identified. That, well, they're minor attracted individuals. There's, a, there's only one reason why you do that. Because there's a stigma to the word pedophile. I would say there's a proper stigma. But that's happening. Why is that happening? Well, it goes back to what we've just read in Romans and in Genesis. This is the expression of man who worships the creature more than the creator. And that is the natural course of man when he rejects the truth of the word of God. We need to keep in mind in this struggle, in this battle that we are in the midst of, it's more than just who one can sleep with or marry. This woman named Paula Edelbrick, She's a legal expert advocating for homosexual rights, and she said this several years ago. She said, being queer is more than setting up house, sleeping with a person of the same gender, and seeking state approval in doing so. Being queer means pushing the parameters of sex, sexuality, and family, and in the process, transforming the very fabric of society. Who would have guessed 40 years ago that if you want to change Society, you do so by attacking family, and you attack family by attacking gender, gender roles, and the distinctions between male and female. And yet there are some individuals who were, I guess you would say, philosophically minded, who are in those camps, who said that was their goal. And they saw that a long time ago. So you see, it's not about you and I just being nice and loving and trying not to upset the apple cart. You, the, the times we live in now, you, just, you, you cannot be a Christian and not upset somebody's apple cart. It's going to happen. We don't have to run around and do it on purpose. And when you upset the apple cart, you don't have to stomp on their apples. But the bottom line is, is that we want to make sure we're standing on the truth. And we can do so with both firmness and compassion. And the reason why I'm going through these things this way is because I want you to be strong. I don't want you to be caught up in all these things because if you do, inevitably what it's going to do is move you away from Christ. It will do that. It will move you away from a proper understanding of the Bible. And when that begins to go, you then just begin to move away from the Bible. And you begin to depend more and more on yourself and those that you choose to listen to. And next thing you know, you will be at least in the camp of those who deny the truth of the word of God. You never intended to go there, and you will end up there. 
And I don't want you to end up in those places. I want you to be able to understand how we can raise our children and our grandchildren and influence over Christ because the world is unrelenting and it's not going to stop. And it's not just you just, just slamming your hand on the table and saying homosexuality is wrong and I don't want to hear another word about it. That's not helpful to our kids. We need to explain to them why out of a great love for them and a great love and devotion for Christ. And so your job as a parent and grandparent is becoming harder because the world is openly against it. But we have the word of God. God has not left us unprepared. He has not left us ill-equipped. And so then we begin with this question. My view of sexuality, is it, does, does it express worship of the creator or worship of the creature? The next question I want to ask, and I'll move through this a little quicker if I can, and that is, does our view of sexuality redefine love and hate? Now, I want you to know that these questions I'm coming with, I didn't just sit in the dark corner one day and have a brilliant flash and came up with them. There's several different books that I've been reading that helped me to form these, and some of these come straight out of them. And this was one of them. Does our view of sexuality redefine love and hate? Remember that even when it comes to a definition of love and hate, we depend upon the Bible for that. The way we define love and hate is based on how we see people. Is man in his present condition normal or has fallen into sin? Like Solomon, Jeremiah, Paul, we judge the human heart as desperately sick, full of moral insanity, and dead in trespasses and sins. As a result, we maintain that the miraculous intervention of God is the only way to restore man. The miracle of regeneration, the miracle in Christ, descending as God with his own life into ours, that is what we desperately need. We then find our idea of normal, not in nature, but normal as defined by our triune God. If man is unfallen, then humanity moves by means really of eternal evolution. And so then you must corroborate and celebrate my happiness as I currently conceive of my happiness in all my unfallen perfection. Anything less is bigotry. And that's the word we hear nowadays, isn't it? That if you don't follow on those lines, you are a bigot, you are prejudiced. For the Christian, love is not construed or constructed to always say, be who you are, because that's how the world views it. It is, become who you are. Become who you are. Who are you? I am an image bearer of the God of the universe, and I need to become that. Peter Jones says this. He says, it is a love like God's that compassionately and zealously pursue the beloved's redemption and flourishing. Love can and is redemptive only if we need redemption. And if we don't view the world and view each other as being fallen, then there's no need for that. And that is why so many are hardened to the gospel. They see nothing in their life that they need to be saved from. Every sexual drive and behavior then becomes justified as normal. In fact, one individual, Alfred Kinsey, said that this. He says, um, Every sexual drive and every behavior of man becomes justified because it's nothing more than the normal mammalian behavior. And those who mimic that are just simply mimicking Alfred Kinsey. What is interesting is that all of his research, all of it, has been rejected by the scientific community. All of it. But his worldview about human sexuality has risen over the past 50 years. It's not based on anything scientific. No one even argues that anymore, though they may quote him. It becomes the cardinal dogma of the mainstream. 
Advocates of this evolutionary worldview have stated that their gospel was a sexual one, that sex was their wedge for reorienting all human relations. So you see, if mere creation is our standard, then whatever sexual drives we find within ourselves are now normal, and then the loving thing to do is to celebrate them. And that's where the push is coming from. If, however, the creator is our standard, then our sexual drives are far from perfect. They are broken. And the loving thing to do is to uh, work by God's grace toward redemption and the recovery of the beauty of our sexuality as God designed it. If our values, thinking, way of determining what is true are structured around the sovereign self, then I am the standard of truth. My emotions are unquestionable. My pleasure is the chief end of my existence. That then means that anyone who questions my sexuality can be motivated by only one thing, hate. And that's what we see being expressed in our world. When they point their fingers at it, say, you're driven by hate. Because this is how we see the world. This is how we determine values. This is how we determine what is true. It is structured around the sovereign self. And so therefore, my truth is my truth. And you now no longer can question my emotions or my drives. However, if our worldview is structured around the sovereign God, then it's hardly loving to tell other sexually fallen people that they have no need for grace, redemption, and healing. And so we come back again to what we talked about last week. It does come back to the gospel. It is a spiritual issue. This is part of spiritual warfare. This is not just some social thing. This is not just some mere moral thing. This is not just someone's preference. This is not, we're not pitting liberal preferences against conservative preferences. All of that is just nonsense. It comes down to what is truth. What does the Bible say? We are Christians. And as I mentioned before, I say these things, we are not allowed to think that there's not a distinction between male and female because that's to deny the word of God. We are not allowed to say that it doesn't matter because that's a denial of God's truth. We're not allowed to say that, well, to each his own. We're not allowed to think that because that goes against what the word of God says. We are Christians. God is always right. This is the way. This is the way of happiness. This is the way of joy. This is the way of restoration. This is the way of regeneration. This is the way into God's kingdom. And they cannot get to this point through their own efforts. There must be an absolute change of their heart because that's the only thing that's going to change their desires because that's what we're fighting against. You cannot change someone's desire. Only God can do that. And God does that by changing their heart. And the heart is changed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just so you know, that's not a narrow-minded stance. That's not a simplistic view of the world. That is profoundly truthful in every way. That is the immense power of the gospel. Because it's God's gospel. God's solution. All of us here who are saved are immensely different than what we would have been without the grace of God. We would have been, in varying degrees, uglier people. Some of you less uglier than others in your meanness. 
but we all would have been these self-centered individuals who would be expressing these same things. And we're not. And it's not because we're better. It's because we've been saved by God's grace. So we need to keep the gospel message central to our life and live in light of the gospel and ask God to give us a heart of love for those who have been hurt, for those who are confused, for those who even are angry. And then ask God to use us as an instrument of kindness and perhaps the messenger of the grace of God in our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Father, I pray you would help us to ensure that we build our foundation, our philosophy of life, our outlook on everything and all issues from the word of God. Help us, Father, to encourage each other, to support each other. Help us, Father, to, to embrace really fully the entire word of God. Father, there may have been times that we have because we either didn't know what to say or maybe we wanted to not get involved in a debate. And so we said that, well, to each their own. Or we said, well, if that's how they were born or made or agree with some other kind of excuse. Father, forgive us for that. Perhaps we were foolish. Perhaps we were afraid. Help us, Father, to be firm. But again, Father, in that firmness, help us, Father, to be men and women, young men and women, even kids, who are driven by your love for others. Help us, Father, to overcome our own dislikes of other people and love them. To love them as if they are our own wayward children our own wayward brother or sister because they desperately need not only our love but the love of Christ. Thank you, Father, for how you've protected us through the years. Help us to be champions of truth. In the name of Christ, amen.